Welcome, listeners, to today's show of Tales of Glory. We got a cool subject today for episode Whopping Big Five. We are looking at the Nephilim, the giants in the Bible. During my stint in church, I held many different hats um, serving in my church, and one of them we spent for some time was in children's ministries. I remember back in children's ministries teaching the children um, the story of Noah in the Bible, right? The flood comes. God calls all the animals in the ark, you know, two animals, two by two. Here we go into the ship, the rain, the deluge comes, and the judgment of man. You know, if you, you think about this story and think about the rest of the context of the Bible, why did God wipe out man? You know, usually God was super patient with the Israelites. You know, they did stupid things. He even got to the point where he called them, you know, they were adulterers, right? They were seeking other gods. Sure, God passed judgment on them. He put them to slavery or sent somebody to conquer them. He never completely wiped them out. Why would God send a flood to wipe out all of mankind? It was something else that we weren't taught in Sunday school was going on. In fact, we weren't taught in church was going on. I remember um, going through the Bible and, you know, and pastors teaching this stuff, but they never really highlighted what was going on with Genesis 6. Maybe because it was too controversial at the time, too much conspiracy theory. Um, I kind of think there is too. I just try to weed it out here in this presentation of what the Bible states and what scholars believe. But I do believe we had something really funky going on here with genetics and something going on with um, um, mankind and this, this, this thing going on. If you look at Genesis 6-1, where these angels came down and sought human wives. So let's take a look at this thing. It's kind of crazy. Genesis 6-1, sons of God and daughters of men. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, Benohim, saw that the daughters of mankind, Bathadam, were beautiful, and he took any they chose as wives for themselves, they being the sons of God. Hmm. And the Lord, Yahweh, said, My spirit will not remain with mankind, Adam, forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim, the Nephil, the fallen ones, were on the earth both in those days and afterward. After me, on those days, before and after the flood. Okay, did you catch that one? But that's just a small little footnote there in Genesis 6-4. When the sons of God, ben Elohim, came to the daughters of mankind, Bathadam, who bore children to them, and they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So in the last line of Genesis 6-4, apparently these famous men or renowned men were known during the time Joseph, Moses wrote this article. So it's not really explained. He kind of assumed that the reader knew what was going on, who these famous men were. But I think it was assumed that at the time of this writing, people knew what the, 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 the sons of God were and who the Nephilim were. So in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, prior to the account of Noah, the great flood, we see this interesting side note in verse 4, what appears to be fallen angelic incursion into the human gene pool. We have the sons of God, in Hebrew, the Ben Elohim, which are referenced to angels, in a specific case, fallen angels and not human beings, taking interest in mating with human women, huh? and taking them for their wives. The Nephilim translate Hebrew to the fallen ones. So angels were on the earth in both days before and after the judgment, the great flood. This gets kind of funky, huh? Judgment decreed by God in verses 5 through 9. Genesis 6, when the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil at the time, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. So God warns Noah, verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, perfect in generations. Huh. Why do we bring that out? Because generations is bloodlines. Let's take a look at this. So Noah walked with God, verse 10, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and, the, and was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its own way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Hmm. So let's take a look at this. So what's what's going on with the sons of God and the flood? So 
What are the sons of God? Ye be angels or ye be men, right? First of all, we're dealing with high-level satanic angels and not demons. Many pastors say these were demons. Demons are low-level fallen angels that are bodiless spirits and they only seem to have the ability to possess human bodies, right? So high-level satanic angels can physically manifest with human bodies. We know angels can do this from the story of Lot. Now the question is, were these sons of God men, commonly referred to as sons of Seth, this conversation, or were they angels? In crime scene investigation here, we are left with the fingerprint in scripture with the name the sons of God. Where do we see this label in the Old Testament, right? We're going to have to confirm it somewhere in the Old Testament that the sons of God were in fact angels. We see it in Genesis 6-2 through verse 4, Job 1 verse 6, Job 2 verse 1, Job 38 verse 7, and Daniel verse 3, 25. All texts refer to Janic angels, the sons of God. The Old Testament identifies the sons of God as angels, all right? Where does scripture bear witness to angels invading our physical realm and taking human wives, right? We got to go back and look at this. Where does it bear witness to this at? We see it happen again in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude. So 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6. 4. If God didn't spare the angels who sinned but threw them into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of the righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood of the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to them ruined, making them an example of those who are going to be ungodly. So, to help us out here, I went to the Southern Baptist Seminary Commentary on Second Peter 2 um, from Dr. Peter Gentry, a professor of Old Testament interpretation. So he states, 2 Peter 2.1 opens with the infiltration of false prophets and teachings in the church causing people to fall away. People who deny the faith about the truth of Jesus and who he is in the gospel. These teachings will bring destruction. Peter addresses this by appealing to the Old Testament where God delivered his people from difficult times. Then he'll be able to do it in the New Testament as well. Peter refers to two examples in the Old Testament. Peter refers to two stories in the Old Testament. One is the story of Genesis 6 and Noah. And the other is the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. There are two examples. Notice the example separated by the and. Example has a negative part and a positive part. So when Peter is talking about the angels who sinned, he's very clearly talking about Genesis chapter 6 because Peter connects it with the story of Noah. Peter is trying to engage his readers from stories found in the Old Testament. If Peter isn't referring to Genesis 6, then where else is the story? There is no other story in the Old Testament that it can be referring to. Some people believe it refers to the fall of Satan. But there is no story in the Old Testament that refers to the fall of Satan. Peter is clearly alluding to the Genesis 6 incursion of angelic beings. So he also talks about um, Jude 5. So let's look at this. Jude, verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord first saved a people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. And he has kept with internal chains and darkness for the judgment for the day, the angels who did not keep their position, but deserted their proper dwelling. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions, just as angels did, and serve as an example by undergoing punishment for eternal life. So that's Jude, verses 5 through 7, right? It's there. Clearly, um, the author of Jude is referencing back to Genesis 6 as well, right? So let's look at the Southern Baptist Seminary commentary on Jude. Jude is doing the same thing as Peter in this letter. Jude is addressing false teachers, just like 2 Peter 2, people who are going to deny the faith, and he also appeals to the Old Testament and shows how God delivered his people in the past and will do so again. He refers to two events. He refers to angels who abandoned their proper dwelling place. He also talks about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, they, in the same way these, committed strange immorality. In the Greek text, the they refers to the angels. The these refers to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story of Genesis 6 has in common with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is the abnormal sexuality going on. Judah is saying that God can deliver us from the strangest perversions, then he'll deliver us you know, completely from anything else that's going on here. So let's take a look at something else here. Um, I want to take a look also at the Southern Baptist Seminary Commentary on Matthew 22:30 and Mark 12, 25. 
because this is an argument that's brought up quite a bit. Um, if the angels came down, then how did they conceive, right? How did they do this? And a lot of times people um, point to Matthew 22 or Mark 12, where it says, um, you know, Jesus in the gospel says, the angels in heaven neither marry nor given in marriage. So it is impossible for an angel to have physical relations with human women. Well, they're not reading the gospels accurately and clearly because Jesus is saying that when in the resurrection, when Jesus returns at the end of history, we who are resurrected are not going to marry because we are not going to be like the angels in heaven. Notice that Jesus is talking about the angels in heaven and Judas talking about the angels who left their proper dwelling place. So there is no contradiction here between Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and the writing of Jude. In heaven, the angels don't marry. In Jude, the angels abandon their proper dwelling place and they go to commit strange immorality. So there's no confusion here. So it is clear that Genesis 6 tells us of angels that committed sexual immorality of women. And 2 Peter 2 and Jude are telling us that this is the correct interpretation of Genesis 6. So what did the people of this time believe about Genesis 6? Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, born around 38 AD, and close to contemporary to Peter and Jude, so he lived about, you know, about the same time as um, Peter and Jude, or the author of Jude, excuse me, writes in his book of Antiquities, Book 1, Chapter 3, the following on Genesis 6. Now this prosperity of Seth continued to esteem God as Lord of the universe, and to have an entire regard to virtue for seven generations, but in the process of time they were perverted and forsook the practices of their fathers and did not neither pay those honors to God which were appointed them, nor had they any concern to do justice towards men. But for what degree of zeal they had formerly shown of virtue, they now showed by their actions a double degree of wickedness, whereby they made God to be their enemy. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. But the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those who were um, called Greek and giants. But Noah was very uneasy at what they did, and being displeased at their conduct, persuaded them to change their dispositions and their acts for the better. But seeing they did not yield to him, but were slave to the wicked pleasures, he was afraid they would kill him, together and his wife, children, and those they married. So they departed out of that land. So commentary note on this remarks that the fallen angels being fathers of giants was a constant opinion of antiquity, okay? At this point, we have established a baseline that the opening of Genesis 6 is referring to angels who left their spiritual realm and interacted with earthly women in acts of sexual morality, okay? This produced the offspring referred to as human hybrid, an abomination, the giants. Whoever read the text in antiquity clearly understood about the Nephilim and the men of renown. Some commentaries paint the Nephilim as literary hyperbole rather than an account of satanic angel incursion into the human gene pool. So what was this incursion in the gene pool? Um, let's look at the satanic angel agenda. Another verse worth examining in Genesis occurs back in chapter 3, where God prophetically releases the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ through the virgin birth. There is an interesting revelation in the prophecy coupling the DNA of God pitted against the DNA of hell. This is a hotbed for conspiracy theory in the Old Testament, which many believe is associated with Genesis 6. Did God prophesy a clash between the DNA of creation and something ungodly from satanic angel origins? We don't know. However, let's look at Genesis 3.15. Verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and he will strike his heel. We know this verse very well. It's a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the virgin birth. But what is being referenced in the second line of the verse, between your seed and her seed, clearly God is speaking to Satan in this dialogue. So therefore, the your seed is Satan's. What is his seed? Is it DNA or is it a metaphor about the diabolic seed of doubt that he's going to place in the human beings, you know, in God's people? I personally believe at this moment that the conversation is about Genesis 6 and a deliberate incursion of satanic angels DNA to defile the bloodline of Jesus Christ. That is the agenda. The problem here is we have no supporting scripture, like we do with Peter and Jude, or from Jesus for that matter. It would have been perfect if he stated something in the Gospels, but he didn't. So that is, this is what we're being referenced. Many theologians try to point to Genesis 3.15 as being a smoking gun for a deliberate satanic angel violation of the human bloodline of Christ. It certainly makes sense, but nowhere else in the Bible does it bear witness to this conspiracy. So I think it's prophetically referencing the Genesis 6 desecration by satanic angels of the human bloodline. But I wouldn't bet the house on it. It's just something interesting that surfaced in Genesis 3, 
and it's difficult to resolve through Scripture. We can loosely couple the verse in Genesis 6-9 where, in verse 9, there are the family's records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, perfect in his generations, right? We're alluding to that his bloodline was perfect. It was not tainted by the satanic angel incursions. Noah and his family may have been saved because he was righteous and his generational bloodline was free of satanic angel abnormalities. It's believed that the mention of perfect in his bloodline statement in Genesis 6-9 is referring to an untainted bloodline, free from satanic angel defilement to the line of Jesus Christ, God's seed. My thoughts are that God is patient, you know. He delivers his people. He'll punish them and he'll put them into captivity get their attention for deliverance, which is what he usually does. People and nations can be delivered. Look at Jonah, right? Jonah was sent into a horrible environment. Those whole people, he was, he was counting on them being wiped out too. Something extraordinary happened where God needed to wipe out the life on earth and press the reset button, sparing only Noah and his family. The world was genetically defiled is the most likely candidate for God's all-out judgment here. Why, right here. why he released the deluge on us, right? Was genetic defilement the prophetic warning in Genesis 3.15? We don't know. So let's go on. So now we have the possibility of a defilement of a bloodline from Jesus Christ. So what were the offspring? What did these things look like? And we know from the Old Testament, giants in the land, right? That's what we had. If the Nephilim defiled the bloodlines of man, then what were their offspring? The race of giants identified in the Old Testament are believed to be the product of satanic angels who conceived with earthly women. Various tribes of giants are identified in the Old Testament. We know the giants survived after the God's judgment of the flood. It's suspected a satanic angel incursion took place after his Noah and his family line were delivered by God. One of the most eluding testimonies in the Old Testament of the existence of giants is presented in Numbers 13.33. Um, excuse me, Numbers 13 where Moses sent Joshua, Caleb, and some scouts to the land of Canaan. So Numbers 13, verse 17, When Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan, he told them, Go up this way to Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Is this the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unprotective? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some fruit to the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and scouted out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance to Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Amon, Seshi, Telamai, the descendants of the Anak, were living. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they came to the valley Eshel, they cut down a branch of a single cluster of grapes, which was carried by men on a pole. Two men on a pole, right? They also took some pomegranates and figs. That place was called Valley of Eshel because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from the scouting of the land, right? So look, <laughs> uh, there's something genetic going on there. They, they, they cut off a, a strand of grapes and two men had to carry it back on a pole. Um, it wasn't just um, these genet genetic abnormalities weren't just limited to humans or something here. There's stuff going on in this land. So let's look at the report about Cain. So verse 26. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong. The cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of the Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Gev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of the land. We certainly can conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't go up against the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants and all the people we saw in a man of men of giant size. We saw even the Nephilim there. The descendants of the Enoch from the, came from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same way to them. This pivotal incident in history is what kept the Israelites in the desert for 40 years, right? They disobeyed against God and did not engage and wipe out the giants as God commanded. Israel feared entering the land and conquering the giants. 
God's judgment was that Israel would not be allowed to enter the land for 40 years. So in Numbers 13.33, we see the following revelation in Scripture. Verse 33. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of the Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves we seem like grasshoppers. We must have seemed like the same to them. The verse is the second to last time we see the word Nephilim, the following ones used in Scripture. The author of Numbers wants us to understand that the Nephilim were literally giants, okay? Also, the Anakites carried the defiled satanic angel hybrid bloodline. We make this connection to the scripture of the Nephilim generations. How did the satanic angel bloodline carry over the Nephilim tribes? Deuteronomy 2 provides some clues. So Deuteronomy 2, verse 10. The Emim, a great numerous people as tall as the Anakim, had previously lived here. They were also regarded as Rephaim. Like the Anakim, though, Moabites called them the Emim. We now have the name Rephaim, the Rephaites, to trace the lineage of these descendants of the Nephilim, the giants, right? In Genesis 14, where Lot separates from Abraham, we one of the first encounters in Scripture with the Rephaites. So we go back to Genesis 14, verse 1. In those days, Amphril, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisir, Chernomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, waged war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adama, and Shemabar, king of Zobim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zor. All of these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Chedlamar for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedlamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karim, the Zuzim tribe in Ham, the Imim tribe in Shevev Keterimth, and the Horadites tribe in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paren by the wilderness. They came back to invade the En Misfat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazan Tamar. Okay, so this particular scripture in Genesis 4 helps us identify the tribes of the Rephaites, right? Verse 5, we have the Rephaim, the Zuzim, also known as the Zuzimites, the Emites in verse 6, the Horites, and in verse 7, the Amalekites and Amorites. And this kind of gives a general idea of the tribes in the Old Testament. Who are the Rephaites, right? What does the scripture tell us about their size? Were they giants? Or some biblical scholars like to say there's really a hyperbole story, right? They were they were metaphorically giants. This, this isn't the case. The Bible <laughs> tells us. So Deuteronomy 1, let's go to verse 26. But you're not willing to go up rebelling against the command of the Lord God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord brought you out of the land of Egypt to deliver you into the hands of the Amorites, so they would destroy us because he hated us. Where can we go, O brothers, who have discouraged us, saying, The people are larger and taller than we are. The cities are large, fortified to the heavens. We also saw the descendants of the Anakim there. We have a description of the size of Rephaim from Deuteronomy 3, where the Israelites take on the giant kings, Shehan the Amorite and King Aga Bashan. So Deuteronomy 3, um, verse 8. At that time, we took the land from the two Amorite kings across the Jordan, from the Arnon Valley as far as Mount Hermon, which the Sidians call Sirion, but the Amorites call Senir. All the cities of the plateau, Gilead and Bashan, are as far as Seclerth and Idrite, cities of Og's kingdom and Bashan. Only Og, king of Bashan, was left the remnant of the Rephaim. His bed was made of iron. Isn't it Rabbah of the Amorites? It is 13 feet, 6 inches long, and six feet wide by standard measure. And this depends on the type of cubits they're using. There's two forms of cubits that are being measured with back then in the old times. So it could have been a 13-foot bed or it could have been an 18-foot bed. You know, this guy was huge. And it's right there in Scripture. Verse 12. At that time, we took possession of this land. I gave to the Reubenites and the Gedites the area extending from Arar, Anarn Valley, and half the hill country of Gilead along with its, its cities. I gave to the tribe of Nessa the rest of Gilead and Al-Bashan, the kingdom of Og, the entire region of Argabab, the whole territory of Bashan used to be called the land of Rephaim. Jer, a descendant of Manasseh, took over the entire region of Argob as far as the border of Geshurites and Medekites. He called Bashan by his own name, Jer's village, as it is today. I give Gilead to Makir, and I give the Rebonites and Gedites the area extending from Gilead to the Arnon Valley, the Milia Valley of the, the border, and up to the Jebak River, the border of the Ammonites. The Arba and the Jordan are also borders from Chinnereth as far as Sea of the Arabath, the Dead Sea under the slopes of Pegasus of the Sea. So this was a giant civilization, right? We learned this from Deuteronomy 9. 
Verse 1. Listen, Israel. Today you're about to cross the Jordan and to go and drive out nations greater and stronger than with the large cities fortified to the heavens. The people are strong and tall, the descendants of the Anakim. You know about them and you've heard it said about them. Who can stand up to the sons of Anak? But understand that today the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord brought me to take possession of the land because I'm righteous. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. Right? So they're defiled. They're wicked. It's the occult and their bloodlines defiled and their, their abominations. The Lord's going to drive them out. You're not going to take possession of the land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of wickedness in order to keep the promise he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand the Lord your God is not giving this good land possession because of your righteousness, for you are stiff-necked people. <laughs> so, right? So he promised this land to Abraham. So the, the, the Israelites here are misbehaving. So God's going to drive them out to fulfill a promise or a prophecy to, to, to Abraham, right? Not because he's he's enjoying these people's presence right now. They're kind of like rebellious to him. So he goes, hey, look, I'm going to give you this land, but it's not because you guys are, are being very nice. Um, you know, certainly not need your righteousness, right? So in the book of Joshua, God commands Joshua to wipe out the Anakites. The book of Joshua has this account. Um, Joshua 11, sorry, verse 21. At the time of Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anab, and all the hill country of Judah and of Israel, Joshua completely destroyed them and their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for the remaining in Gaza, Goth, and Ashdod. So um, that's an interesting point right here. So God commands them to wipe out the Anakites, right? And did Joshua wipe out the Anakites? No. Verse 22, no Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza, Goth, and Ashdod. Interesting. So why is this important? Let's fast forward to David and Goliath, right? And the other giants in the book of Samuel. So where did the giant Goliath come from? So 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. The Philistines gathered their forces for Sukkoth and Judah and camped around Sukkoth and Azekot and Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley Elah. Then they lined up battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on a hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill, the ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath, remember? Joshua drove him to Gath. He didn't wipe him out. <laughs> Here they come again to, to bite them in the booties. Um, then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet tall, nine inches. So again, this depending on the cupids, he could have been nine feet tall or he could have been 16 feet tall, depending on the measurements. Verse 5, and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and bronze sword as a slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of the spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, the sheer shielded bearer was walking in front of him. So was Goliath just a tall anomaly, or were there giants with him, right? It's just, we don't know. So let's just read on here. So 2 Samuel. So was Goliath the only one in Goth, right? Was he the only giant? Or do we have a few left over that Joshua didn't wipe out? So 2 Samuel um, 21, verse 15, Philistine giants. The Philistines again waged war against Israel. David went down with his soldiers, and they fought the Philistines. But David became exhausted. Then Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giant Rapha, who's, right, he's a giant, one of the descendants of the giant Rapha, whose bronze spear weighed in about eight pounds and who wore new armor intending to kill David. But Ashabi, son of Zeria, came to his aid, struck the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you must never again go out without us in battle. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. After this was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At the same time, Sabiki the Shittite killed Saf, was one of the last descendants of the giant. Okay? So we have another giant that is wiped out. So is that two so far? Beyond Goliath. Verse 19. Once again, there was a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and Elihan, son of Jer Arjem, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, just like Goliath's, right? We have another one here. So we have to, what's that, three now? 
at Goth, remember? The town of Goth, there was still another battle. A huge man was there with six fingers in each hand, six toes in each foot, 24 in all. He too was a descendant from the giant Rapha, right? Raphaim, he's another one. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of David's brother Shikim, killed him. These four were descended from the giant Rapha and Goth and were killed by David and his soldiers. Okay, so we had five giants they had to clear out because Joshua didn't wipe out the, the giants. Um, we see the same account is given in 1 Chronicles, right? 1 Chronicles 20, the Philistine giants. Verse 4, after this, a war broke out with the Philistines at Gezer. At the same time, Sebekai, the Hishtite, killed Sepai, a descendant of the giants, Raphaites, and the Philistines were subdued. So he took out his, his champion. Once again, there was a battle to Philistines. Elihan, son of Jeher, killed Lamia, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, right? Same recount. There was still another battle at Goth, where there was a man of extraordinary stature with six fingers on each hand and six toes in each foot, 24 in all. He, too, was a descendant of the giants, the Raphael. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan's son, David's brother Shimei, killed him. These were the descendants of the giant in Rapha, Gath killed by David and his soldiers. So well, let's look at this. So Josephus writes in Antiquities of the Jews 5.23 that even up until the first AD, the bones of giants slain by the tribes of Judah and Simeon were still on display. It was like a tourist attraction up until the, almost the first AD. We don't know what happened to these. It would be kind of cool if they were still around. So in Josephus' words, for which reason they removed their camp to Hebron, and then when they had taken it, they slew the, all the inhabitants. There were till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and continents so entirely different from other men that they were su surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men were still shown to this day unlike to any incredible revelations of the men. So Josephus says, hey, they still had them. I don't know if they're on display in Goth or what. Who knows? Um, as we dig through the antiquities in Gaza up there and stuff, maybe they'll show up again. So let's look at other Josephus references to giants' antiquities. So if you guys want to look these up yourselves in Josephus, Antiquities 3.4.14.2, Moses spies, see the giants in Canaan, Antiquities 7.4.1, the Valley of the Giants, and Antiquities 7.12.1, Achman, Son of the Giants, right? So um, I'll leave in the show notes where to find these at. So that's interesting. So at the time, based on um, maybe like the first century AD or something, the common belief were, and there were bones on display of giants, right? And the common belief too was that the sons of angel, the sons of God were in fact um, satanic angels who just created this uh, abomination DNA, our, our race to, to um, proliferate the, the bloodline and, you know, try to stop Jesus from being born of righteous men. So, I'm going to take a detour here, almost in a conspiracy theory. And we're going to talk about the book of Enoch. And now a word from our sponsor, M16 Ministries Training Series. Yes, this is the series that keeps the lights on the M16 bunker. Hey, if you're a spiritual warrior and you're any but serious in your prayer warfare and you're dealing with um, supernatural, you're dealing with hauntings, you're dealing with blessing houses, tainting objects, you're dealing with you know full-scale demonic oppression, the occult, you have to get your hands on these books. These are the only books out there like this that I know of that train people to walk in their authority. Again, spiritual authority is caught and not taught. You're not going to learn through these little conferences and these things that, that you have to read these formulated. Basically, what they are is like church for doing their rituals. They're, they're rituals. They're rites. They, uh, you do this, this, and this. They're formulas. A formula is a rite. It's a ritual. When you're dealing with the supernatural, there is no methodology. You have to know where you walk in your spiritual authority, hands down. That's it in the battle. So if you want to learn to walk in your spiritual authority and, and get trained up in it, a field guide to spiritual warfare, um, M16 Ministries Field Guide Training Series, or what you guys got to get your hands on. The first book I wrote 10 years ago, A Field Guide to Spiritual Warfare, The Power to Pull the Impossible from the Heavenly Realm, uh, written in 2010, and I work with people who deal with hauntings or they have some occult stuff going on. Um, this is the go-to book. I send it out to them and tell them, look, you know, go through this. And they're always excited, like, wow, where was this material? It wasn't in church. That's right, it wasn't, because this was pulled from the trenches. It's all biblical. Because when you see the biblical side and what scriptures and stuff you have to use against this stuff, and you have trained know-how, 
your authority light bulb goes on. I call it the aha moment. Aha! I have authority. You need to learn this. Pastors, you're dealing with um, high-level stuff, the occult, demonic possession, or you're dealing with satanic ritual abuse in your church. You've come across it. What, what gives? You need to get a field guide to advanced spiritual warfare, deliverance, exorcism, and healing the, the effects of ritual abuse. And these books are available on a field guide to spiritual warfare.blogspot.com. Just follow the button links on the side panels here. And yeah, please, I encourage you. We, we spent the time to write these books, get the information out. These are the books I actually wrote for myself. If I had to go back in time, go, hey, when I was dealing with this stuff, is there any good information out here besides all this cookie cut sermon stuff that was just popular and, and just flooding, flooding deliverance books? Look, look, they're all one written one after the other. Look all the same. They're cookie cut. This is not a cookie cut book. This one's different. Why? Because it's written by somebody who was in the trenches of warfare. So get your hands on these books. Thank you. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. The Book of Enoch. We can't have a discussion about the giants of Genesis without bringing up the Book of Enoch. The first book of Enoch is included in the Ethiopic Bible, right? In Western canon, the book is categorized as apocryphal. Apocryphal means the book has doubtful authenticity as blind to the canon of the Bible. The first book of Enoch tends to raise more questions and provide the answers, right? Many believers feel that this book belongs in the Bible because it answers the question supposedly of what and who the Nephilim are. And many people run off of this as being factual account. When in essence, as we will find out, is more like uh, the scientists at Jurassic Park trying to fudge together raptor DNA with the Amazonian tree frogs. Remember that scene? Um, they didn't have all the sequencing properly for the raptors, so they used Amazonian tree frog you know, DNA and kind of fudged together the strands. So as we'll discover, even the Apostle Paul referred to this text as being mythical in nature. But let's take a look at the first book of Enoch and its author, Enoch, from Genesis 5. So first of all, who is Enoch? Enoch appears in only seven verses of Genesis 5, what lays out his genealogy. So Genesis 5, verse 18, Jared was 162 years old when his, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after the birth of Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted about 365 years, Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. So God just took him up to heaven. Interesting. These seven verses are all we know about the individual Enoch, right? What is intriguing about this is that Enoch is the first man that God brings up into heaven. So if we remember, all souls were waiting for the resurrection of Jesus in the spiritual realm of death called Sheol, right? That's where all righteous men went. They went to Abraham's bosom, right? And across the chasm there was, there was Hades or hell. So Enoch was taken up to heaven by God, and the myth is, this book is supposed to be an account of what he learned in heaven about the fallen angels, right? So let's take a look at the book of Enoch, and let's just read through it as to why it's interesting and why so many Christians embrace it as being factual and filling in the, the so to speak, the Amazonian tree frog DNA strands here. Um, so let's start with the first, first verse in the book of Enoch. It happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days, that daughters were born to them, elegant and beautiful. And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. So far we're consistent with the account recorded in Genesis right here, right? So in the following verse we may see an account not supported anywhere in the Bible canon. So here we go. Hold on. Book of Enoch, um, verse 3. Then the leader... Samajia said to them, I fear that you may perhaps be indisposed to the performance of his enterprise, and I alone shall suffer for grievous of a crime. But the answerman said, We all swear and bind ourselves by mutual execrations that we will not change our intention, but execute our projected undertaking. Then they all swore together and bound themselves by mutual execrations. Their whole number was 200 who descended upon Artis, which is atop of Mount Armon. That mountain, therefore, was called Armin because they had sworn upon it. It's later called Mount Hermon. And bound themselves by mutual execrations. 
verse 9. These are the names of the chiefs, Semzoya, who was their leader, Erechimero, Ikebel, Temel, Ramal, Demil, Ezekiel. It goes on and on. It's a list of angelic angels. Um, so this is a weird genealogy angels presented to us, right? Which again doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible canon. These are the names of satanic angels called the Watchers. So verse 10. They took wives, each choosing for himself, whom they began to approach, with whom they cohabited, teaching them sorcery, incantations, and the dividing of roots and trees. And the women conceiving brought forth giants, whose stature was each 300 cubits. These devoured all which the labor men produced until it became impossible to feed them. Maybe this is why we had giant grapes, right? Verse 13. When they turned themselves against men in order to devour them. Okay, so they couldn't eat enough food. The grapes weren't finishing them off. So they devoured their um, normal human laborers. So it became cannibalism. And began to endure birds, beasts, reptiles, fishes to eat their flesh one after the other and to drink their blood. Remember, it was not, this is forbidden to drink blood in um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So here they go and they're defiling stuff. Verse 15, then the earth reproved the unrighteous. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. We're given an account of the insatiable appetite that drove them to devour men and to eat the flesh of animals and drink blood. All these are, are told us in Deuteronomy and Leviticus not to do this, right? It's, it's, um, it's satanic. Some scholars tried to fold these verses back to the gospel. In the book of Matthew, Jesus makes this prophetic proclamation, right? You heard this one? So back in Matthew 24, 37 through 39, so Matthew 24, 37. As the days of Noah were, so is the coming of man will be. Verse 38. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded his ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. So this is the way the coming of man will be. So it's a very compelling that the prophecy in the Gospel of Matthew by Jesus of they are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah boarded the ark is a direct correlation to these um, Nephilim um, for being cannibals and eating men, but still a leap. It's possible Jesus referring to the account of giants, but I believe more so that Jesus is pointing back to Genesis 6 than the book of Enoch. There are too many pieces of the book of Enoch that don't fit. It's like the scientists in Jurassic Park again trying to clone raptors by filling the unknown strands of DNA with genetic code from the Amazon tree frog, right? It's not an exact fit. We can't do this with scripture either. Enoch is not a smoking gun like Christianity's try to lead us to believe. This is a false teaching. It raises more misleading questions than solid answers. The book of Enoch was in the synagogues before the miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ, right? So first century Latin theologian Tertullian believed that the epistles of Peter and Jude were directly referencing the book of Enoch. And Tertullian believed this was a testimony of the authority of the book of Enoch. Again, Tertullian is connecting the dots and not providing a smoking gun. I believe the epistles of Peter and Jude were only testifying the authority of Genesis 6 and no more, right? So these are indicators of the epistle of 1 Timothy that the Apostle Paul didn't even believe in the authenticity of the book of Enoch. So it, he says it here in 1 Timothy um, 1, um, false doctrine and misuse of the law. Let's look at verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach doctrine um, you know, this fallacy doctrine, right? Or verse 4, to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. Okay, so the endless genealogies that Paul is referring to is a list of fallen angels in the book of Enoch. Remember going through that? All these names that didn't make sense. We see the reference to Enoch being a myth in 1 Timothy 4, 7 as well. Um, so 1 Timothy um, 4, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed, but have nothing to do with these irreverent and silly myths. So the problem the Apostle Paul is having with the book of Enoch is that it wrote over the original sin of the fallen man in the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis 3. In the book of Enoch, our physical universe fell because of angelic sin, not man's sin, and their disobedience with God. So this is heresy, right? It's going against... Um, um, Genesis 3, we fell because of our own short-sighted misgivings, our stupidity in the, in the, the garden, right? We, we disobeyed God and rebelled against him, so we fell. The, the book of Jude is pointing out that the sin is in the world because of the fall of man, not because of angelic sin. That's a connection people don't get. 
The book of Enoch is about angelic sin causing the decay and fall of man and the earthly world. That's not true. That's not what happened. So we have all this to pontificate and ponder over. You know, there's no real answers. It's just stuff we got to um, use the Bible and follow it around and see where it gives testimony to itself or where it bears testimony. That's what we have to do here. And this um, book of Enoch's not the book to look at. So if there were giants, do we have any physical evidence of giants? The answer is no. Um, let's look at Goliath. Does anything exist about Goliath? I found an interesting article in Hertz.com, um, a report, and I put it in the show notes as well. You'll find it on the blog site, um, a field guide spiritual warfare.blogspot.com attached to this show. Um, Hertz.com reports in 2017, archaeologists found shards of pottery in Philistine Gath. Who was it, Gath? The giants that were described with names similar to Goliath's. In the first book of Samuel, it states he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. Hertz notes if the story had been 7th or 6th century um, before Christ, fiction, written hundreds of years after the event, the author would have no idea how warriors have been garbed in the early Bronze Age, right? To sum up, Goliath seems to have worn contemporary Bronze Age gear. Scribes did exist shortly after this time, possibly within it. The biblical descriptions um, suit over ancient texts, referring to armies led by champions rather than as the impersonal institutions of later texts. So the accurate description of the Bronze Age warrior's equipment opens up the possibility that a memory was handed down over several centuries, embellished to be sure, but with a core of truth. So this is um, this is something from the archaeologists. So we're starting to see um, uh, the earth over in Goth um, start releasing some of her secrets, right? As they dig and do stuff, that this stuff starting to show up, pointing towards yeah, these guys were real. How about giants in American history? Um, we have some interesting tales too. If you hunt around the net, it was um, Billy the Kid or something gives an account. I think it was with the Sioux Indians where they told him they found. Um, a place of giant burial bones. And I don't think it's around now or probably, I don't know what happened to it, but he documented it in his um, personal memoirs. The, the Sioux Indians told him about this. There was giant Indians. And the interesting thing about these Indian lore was that these these um, these giants were so big they could outrun a buffalo, come alongside it and just break its leg and rip it off. These were like, you know, these, these had to be like 12 foot men and the Indians were deathly afraid of it. And the interesting context about these, these, these giants were they had six fingers and six toes. Or we've seen this before, right? Um, and based on some American Indian lore now, it, it's, it's told. I need to refer, research this further. The reason the Indians write up and hold their hand up like in a wave and go, how? Hold their hand up? Is because they want whoever they're meeting to show that they don't have six fingers on their hands because that's immediately an enemy. They're, they're a giant or they're an aberration and they know it which means that these per people with the six fingers were cannibals. I mean, it just, it's just American Indian lore I want to research more into. Um, in my neck of the woods out here, Winnemecca, Nevada, we have um, some giants that were found um, in a cave You know, by, in the 1920s. Some farmers went to look for bat guano in a cave, and they unearthed all these different bodies, and among some of them were giants. They were red-haired giants. And I guess the Ute Indians out here in Nevada have a story that the, uh, these giants were cannibals, and they... Um, got so frustrated with them, they, they chased them into a cave and set the cave on fire and burned them in it and sealed the cave. So we have stories all over that are kind of funky about this. One of the most interesting stories has come out recently now. Um, and I posted a link on uh, the show notes too because I found one source that's kind of interesting. Um, the Giant of Kandahar. So there's a story account of several years back in, in Afghanistan that um, some a Marine squad engaged a giant red-haired, you know, a red-haired giant. Um, he took out the first squad, didn't bring a second squad back. My second squad came back to take it on and kill it. This 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 red-haired giant supposedly was a cannibal and ate the squad. Um, supposedly, the the body of this individual was um, brought back to the United States. Nobody knows what happens to it. Again, it's more um, conspiracy theory going on here, but I point to an article that has some sort of reliance to it or some sort of credibility to say that there may be truth in all this. So I'm just going to let you guys draw your own conclusions. I believe that Genesis 6 is about a satanic fallen angel 
agenda to pollute the um, bloodline to Christ, and they did every way possible. And so the, his seeds that we see in Saint, um, Genesis 3.15 are Satan's seeds, right? And these angels came down, defiled the bloodline, and we had giants. And they were here before the flood and after the flood because, you know, these satanic angels can get out of here <laughs> when the flood comes and come back after. And it's the angels that are in chains now are probably when they came back for the second incursion that God got fed up and goes, no more messing my, you know, my, my human DNA down here, my spiritual beings. So I'm going to cast you guys into the pit of darkness and those are the angels that are down there. You know, there's, there's a lot we can draw from here. But I think I think what Paul suggested, too, about the book of Enoch, uh, you know, Paul is obviously talking about that. It's, it's something we can't, you know, in church we like to get the, we try to be the, um, get the new information now or be, you know, information driven as our society is. But we can't be with the book of Enoch. It's the wrong information. We have to know what information we need to keep and which information to toss. We don't toss out the baby with the bathwater. It still provides some information and it's still something good to research. But... I don't think Enoch's a smoking gun. And furthermore, it goes off to deeper, um, you know, rabbit holes of what demons are. And I don't want to approach that here. I'll probably discuss it later. So anyhow, um, that's our show for today on the Giants. And I tried to come at this from a more scientific point of view than a conspiracy theory. Because I want you guys to connect the dots as Christians on what's real and what isn't. How we need to approach this material and what to go look at and read for yourselves. So, you know, it is what it is. But it's some cool stuff. I do believe we had Giants. We had them. And David and his mighty men took them out. Thank God. Did they flee other places? I don't know. There's, there's places all in the net with UFO theory. And I think some of our Christians have sunk into following UFO conspiracy theories and polluting this. I, you know, I don't want to go there uh, until, you know, there's absolute facts. Um, I do believe that something's going on where they're, they're hiding these bodies. They excavate them. That seems to be the thing because we're getting, you know, we're excavating, we're finding mounds with giants in them, and all of a sudden these bodies are disappearing. Especially the the story of Kandahar, if you follow it, why did the military seize this thing? What did they want with it and why did it disappear? Rather than putting it on display or showing it to Smithsonian or something. Who knows? Anyhow, um, that's our show. If you want to find out the information, go to a field guide to spiritual warfare.blogspot.com for this show, episode five. And I have my show notes posted there. Um, this I mean, thank you guys for tuning in, and my dogs give me the, the wave off right now, my producer, to go ahead and wrap up the show. So God bless you guys. Remember, this show is copyright um, 2019, Michael Norton, and I recommend you guys to go out and get to a field guide to spiritual warfare and the advanced field guide spiritual warfare, because that helps keep the lights on. Those are available at fieldguidespiritualwarfare.blogspot.com on a sidebar, and we also need help keeping the bunker lights um on during the winter so if you can love us on our paypal button over there and help us out we greatly appreciate it as we kindly research and disseminate more spiritual warfare information to you guys out there god bless and hope you guys had a great thanksgiving weekend till later <laughs>